0: with me Dr. Uh, Ginevra Lipton. Uh, She's a pioneer in the treatment of fibromyalgia that is both evidence-based and integrative. She's the author of The Fibro Manual, a complete fibromyalgia treatment guide uh, for you and your doctor, and the fibro food formula. Uh, I also have with me uh, Aditi Bhatt, our our producer, and uh, my name is uh, Vivek Narayan. Uh, Dr. Lipton, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here
0: we usually start off by asking our guests you know what sort of influenced them what what motivated them to get into their particular areas of expertise uh, and i know that you have a particular a particularly personal story over here but as you're talking about that perhaps also give us a sense of why you got into medicine in the first place
1: so i got into medicine um when i started to deal with some health issues in college And I went to see my conventional doctor and they really had no kind of answers for me. And at some point, my mom recommended, like, why don't you go see a naturopathic physician who's more oriented towards holistic health and kind of dietary changes. And uh, I was amazed because within a month of working with this physician, I was so much better. And so that's when, I mean, originally I had been planning on being a scientist of some sort, chemist or environmental scientist. But that experience made me want to bring kind of the best of integrative medicine into Western medicine. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to med school, had it all planned out. And then life sometimes throws you curveballs. And when I was in medical school, I uh, developed the symptoms of fibromyalgia and it took me a long time, like eight months to figure out what was going on. Again, it was not a conventional doctor that helped me figure out that diagnosis. It was actually a chiropractor who said, "I think you might have fibromyalgia, and I was like, "Fibro what like I'd not even heard of it.
0: guess say fibromyalgia
1: <laughs> exactly like i don't what are you talking about It was not in my any of my lectures so uh that kind of shifted my whole orientation to first figuring out how could I get better myself, better enough to get back to med school. I took a year leave of absence and was able to find some things that helped. And then I decided, you know, it's really an underserved condition. I need to spend the rest of my career figuring out how to treat this illness and also what's causing it because it really was so misunderstood at the time.
0: Right, right. And I think you've touched upon something which a lot of of patients face, which is, you know, um, when it comes to trying to figure out for yourself, and when it comes to other people trying to help you figure out that hey, you know, perhaps you do have uh, fibromyalgia. There's a lot of challenges that people face. Uh, my sense is that it's getting better, but uh, could you could you sort of touch upon that? What, what are the challenges that you know not only patients face, but perhaps uh, even practitioners uh, as they're interacting with uh, uh, patients who potentially may have fibromyalgia?
1: It it I agree with you. It is getting better. What's different now? Um, compared to 24 years ago when I was dealing with fibromyalgia is that most providers do at least know about it. They believe that it exists and they feel like it's a a legitimate condition. And, and so then they're kind of motivated, more motivated to make that diagnosis, figure out treatments. When I was, you know, dealing with it, another thing I was dealing with when I was first um, trying to treat myself or find providers was that so many of them didn't even believe in it. You know, they they would say like it's all in your head, or you know, it's kind of the hysterical woman's disease. And there was so much stigma around it that I really felt a lot of shame. And and once I even had the diagnosis, I didn't share it with anybody. None of my med school colleagues, you know, I I just learned like, oh, I'm not gonna talk about that. And that's different now. There's less stigma more providers know that it exists. The gap now is that providers don't quite know what to do to help their patients. So the average conventional doc only really knows about kind of the few prescriptions that are FDA approved and frequently used, the antidepressants and the um, uh, kind of gabapentin, pregabalin, the things that modify nerve transmission for pain. Beyond that, they don't really have much to offer. And those meds only give about twenty to thirty percent improvement in most patients um, so there's there's a lot more that can be done with diet with lifestyle changes with supplements with exercise with manual therapy but that's what they don't quite know about and so my now I feel like my mission is really to kind of educate providers and patients about these other things that they can try that do have some evidence behind them but Providers just might not know about it. You know, the, the data is out there right. in the journals, but I mean, who what busy physician, primary care right. physician, has time to read, you know, obscure massage therapy journals to learn about manual therapy that can help? Like it's not gonna happen. <laughs> they can barely keep up with COVID, you know? It's like
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And 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 this is something I think that um a lot of a lot of physicians face in general, which is just simply being overburdened with what it is that they have to do. Um, you know, I think it's it's very difficult to find sort of uh, the time where one can do the research into the journals. You know, there used to be this ethos of going uh, and looking at the literature and, you know, making sure that uh, you're up to date. But uh, it's it's very difficult to do that these days. And perhaps also... Um, you know the amount of scientific literature that has proliferated; it makes it also perhaps a, a, a difficult to keep up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I, I know in our previous conversation, you had mentioned there was that there's a, a screening tool that perhaps uh, physicians can use. So if you know if there are uh, a, a few, I think you had mentioned you know if if there's a couple of these checkboxes that the patient ticks off, then you know, the easiest thing that one can do as a physician is employ this screening tool. And could you uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, let's say a, a a patient presents to their physician and they're complaining of kind of widespread muscle pain, they're fatigued, their sleep is, you know, not as restful as it once was, they're feeling brain fog, you know, any of those symptoms, hopefully will trigger in the physician's brain, like, hmm, I should assess you for fibromyalgia. And we used to diagnose it um, just based on history and then exam, you know, does somebody have enough tender points? Now they've actually moved away and the, the newer diagnostic criteria developed in 2016 um, by the American College of Rheumatology is actually kind of survey based. So it is something that a physician can provide their patient. And it basically has them, you know, check off how many body areas are they having pain rate their level of fatigue, their level of fog, um, the quality of their sleep. And it's, you know, it's really like a one pager. It's it's not super long. And then, you know, you get a score at the bottom. And then if, if the score is high enough, then they say, you know, your patient could have uh, fibromyalgia. I, I do still think the exam is important, of course. Um, I'm a little old school in that way. Because uh, I do think it's important to kind of evaluate, like, are your muscles actually tender? Because that's what fibromyalgia primarily is. It's muscle pain. And even in the name, you know, myalgia, that means muscle pain. So right, uh, right, I think that is also an important piece. But if if people could start using that in their practice, just like, oh, you're experiencing widespread muscle pain, or you're having like neck pain that we can't figure out the root cause of, your x-ray is fine hand them that survey and that could, I think, make a huge difference as far as getting people diagnosed.
0: Right, right, right. Um, and and for our non-technical uh, audience members, uh, you mentioned myalgia is muscle pain, but what is the fibro part of fibromyalgia?
1: I'm so glad you asked that because that's where actually my research interest, interest lies. Um, so fibro really means like connective tissue, right? Like fibrous tissue in the body. And so that's kind of the fascia that surrounds our muscles and penetrates them, that also kind of turns into the ligaments and tendons that connect, you know, muscles and joints together. And that actually is where I personally think a lot of the pain from fibromyalgia is generated. And fascia is actually really, really sensitive um, to pain, much more so than the actual muscle tissue itself. So I've, I've, devoted kind of my research career to looking at, you know, what's going on in the fascia that's contributing mm-hmm. to fibromyalgia pain. And interestingly, one of the manual therapies that works the best for fibromyalgia and what really saved me and got me back to medical school is a treatment that works on fascial tension. It's called myofascial release. Oh,
0: very interesting.
1: I, I've always been a promoter of it. And, um, I'm so glad that there's science now to back me up, because there's been a few uh, European studies that have shown significant benefit for pain with myofascial release. And what's really cool about these studies is it actually showed durable pain relief. So even a month after patients were done with their 20 weeks of treatment, a month after they still had reduced pain, and even six months later, they still had improved symptoms. So it really did seem to sort of shift some of the um, kind of the tension and inflammation that I think in the fascia is generating a lot of pain, and um, that's the kind of part that I keep trying to like send out there to other doctors to understand. Like, you know, if you can do the survey, diagnose fibromyalgia, and then the first thing I would love people to do is say you should seek out myofascial release, or you should start doing some myofascial release stretching. You can do a lot of things on your own, and um, I talk a lot about that in in my book, like what you can kind of do. Do for
0: yourself kind of so, self care Right. Um, th- so you've raised a very interesting point, and I'm curious to know, um, you know, within let's just say traditional medicine, which I think the boundaries of traditional medicine are now loosening up. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, as we become aware of, of of uh sort of other modalities, I guess. Um but myofacial release has a very specific connotation. Could you perhaps uh, address, uh, you know, what what are the uh, anatomical considerations that sort of go into this concept of myofacial release? And, and perhaps, uh, I don't know if we know this or not, but um, it seems to me that um, if it is, to your point, if it is causing such a tremendous benefit for the patient, um, you know, you mentioned this is something that one can do as, as part of self care, it's also something that one can probably access outside the traditional medical system as well if one had the resources to do so. So, right. perhaps uh, if you wouldn't mind just, you know, perhaps digging deeper into this because it seems to me to be quite fascinating. Yeah.
1: It is quite fascinating. Uh, it, so, the difference between myofascial release and kind of traditional massage therapy is important to understand. And there's a lot of different kind of techniques that fall under that kind of umbrella of myofascial release. But primarily the difference is, is they involve kind of prolonged, kind of assisted stretching. So the therapist will kind of have their hands, you know, kind of gently pulling apart the tissue over several minutes, because it takes several minutes for the fascia to release. So unlike kind of muscles, which can respond to like Swedish massage or things that are more just like rubbing or stroking um, or you know, kneading. Uh, the fascia needs time. And so if you can give it a few minutes, it, that's when things can soften. So it's almost like this kind of softening of the of the fascia. So there's a lot of different ways to, to approach this. Um, the technique that I found the most helpful is one that was started by a physical therapist in the US and his name is John Barnes. So he has kind of the John Barnes approach to myofascial release. But rolfing is another technique that people are familiar with that also addresses the fascia. And everything that they, all these techniques and even the self-care strategies just involve time. So, you know, getting yourself in a, a position, like for a lot of us with fibromyalgia, our, ne- our neck, particularly the sides of our neck is is really tight. And so even like just kind of helping yourself by holding like this or using like a a strap to kind of hold um, something as simple as that. If you hold it long enough, you'll feel a release and you'll feel just kind of this softening of tension. And almost everybody with fibromyalgia that I've ever talked to about that is like, Oh yeah, that would feel so great. Like people kind of recognize that like, that's like intuitively they kind of recognize that there's something more than the muscle involved Um, My dream, of course, would be for this to be something that's covered by insurance. And that, at least in the U.S., is the big challenge, is typically folks that do myofascial release are outside of the traditional medicine system. There are a few physical therapists that are within the system that do myofascial release, and that can be a really good way to access it um, under insurance. But for the most part, people are having to spend out of pocket on it and so that's why i think the Mm self-care component is so so valuable um because you know who can who can afford (laughs) a couple times a week therapy for 20 weeks like they did in the european study so
0: right right and is this is is this uh i guess access to care is this uh, uh different in other parts of the world i mean i know that the u.s is particularly unique in the way it's structured uh our healthcare finance structures. That's a
1: good yeah. way to say it. Um, Particularly messed up, I think, might be the way, but yes.
0: <laughs> having uh having to work within the system over here, one learns to be, I guess, uh um diplomatic about it. So yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the access in some countries is is better. Like I, I know in the Scandinavian countries, um it often myofascial release is included. Kind of in their coverage, uh, but I'm I'm not, honestly not not sure because there's several countries that I'm aware of, like Iceland doesn't even has no myofascial release therapists, like there's nobody there doing it. Um, so I think there's sort of access to care like cost issues, but then also there's some places where nobody's trained or there's not enough people trained in myofascial release. So I would love for more physical therapists to get that training. Cause I think it fits in so nicely with kind of physical therapy work. And at the same time, they can also give guidance on traditional physical therapy things, which can benefit like, right, how do you right. exercise, how to exercise and not hurt yourself? Like how to do graded exercise, you know, they, they can kind of teach that component as well. And like, look at your posture, look at like the chairs you sit in, all of that can be so, so valuable. And if it's kind of partnered with myofascial release, ah, that would be so perfect for, for fibromyalgia patients.
0: So uh, I think the the sort of uh, milieu or the scenario that you're describing really is, you know, there is quote unquote what we would say maybe best practice. Uh, the awareness of that best practice is probably not um, as prevalent as we would like it to be. Um, uh, do you th- I mean, clearly there's an opportunity to, you know, create a standard Uh, create awareness about that standard uh perhaps is that why you think your book is so popular i mean (laughs) while aditi and i were doing uh, some research you know we did the we did the lazy research which is go on to amazon and we're like okay you know Dr. (laughs) dr lipton top 15 on pain. And I was like, wait, hang on. When it comes to fibromyalgia, she's actually top two. And by the way, the, the, the first book has the words Mayo Clinic on it. So take away that. You really, Dr. Lipton's book is number one. And so, you know, clearly it's very popular. So, you know, what, what uh, you mentioned about, you know, creating awareness, was that one of the core sort of motivators behind writing the book or, uh, you know, describe Absolutely. some of the motivation over there, but also perhaps some of the feedback and the response that you received on the book as well. So
1: I have gotten uh, good feedback, which makes me feel wonderful because the reason why I wrote the book was because I realized that providers don't have the time to learn more about fibromyalgia. I realized that education of providers was going to have to come through patients so that like a patient might learn about a technique and say, hey, Doctor, so and so, I want to try myofascial release. Can you refer me to a physical therapy person that does that? So, my goal was to kind of sneakily educate providers, and at the same time, give patients enough information that they could do because there's so much that they can do to help themselves. You know, so much of mm-hmm. of the kind of benefits that you can get as far as fibromyalgia improvement are related to things that patients can do for themselves. Dietary changes, you know, reducing inflammatory foods, improving their sleep, improving their sleep habits, um, getting the right multivitamin, the right vitamins to kind of support energy and brain function, um, learning about myofascial release, self care. You know, eighty percent of fibromyalgia care really is something the patient can person can do for themselves. And so my thought was, okay, maybe I kind of skip trying to educate the providers because I will say like I used to do some CME and other things for providers about fibromyalgia and they were never well attended. Like, no, it's not high on the average doctor's list unless they like mm-hmm. are a weird specialist like me who likes to treat you know <laughs> fibromyalgia. For the most part, yeah. people, providers are not going to seek it out. And so I realized I was going to have to kind of go kind of more of a grassroots approach. And so then... My vision was that, you know, a patient might then have some information to take to their provider. And in the mm-hmm. spirit of that, at the end of the book is actually like an eight page appendix. That's a very brief outline for the provider, detailed references, because providers like evidence, right? They're, they don't want right. you to just come in and be like, I saw this thing on a weird YouTube video and like, I want to try, you know, this. It's Providers, even myself, I get a little bit like, uh, like, where's the evidence? Like, what, what are you yeah. talking about? Um. So my vision was: can patients photocopy that portion, bring it to their doctor, and maybe that doctor would have time to look through an eight-page thing that that at least could help them understand. Ah, myofascial release. There's some data behind that. Okay, I'll refer you. As simple as that. So right. I get some feedback that that's happening and that, that's the part that makes me really excited is, is if I can, you know, every one provider I can help understand fibromyalgia better then can treat all their fibromyalgia patients much better fibromyalgia is yeah. really common. You know, it's, it's very, there's a, estimated to be 10 million people in the US that have fibromyalgia. So obviously I cannot treat them all. So I was like, I need to educate right. patients and providers so that everybody can get the care they need.
0: No, that makes sense. And 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 I think, you know, if one does want to make an impact, uh, which it seems quite clearly that you do, I think this is probably one of the best ways to go about doing it. So, no, I think that's, uh, I, I have to uh, commend you uh, on the thought, but also the approach and and the execution of course. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but you raised something which, um, you know, we've we've been asking our guests and um, we're very curious to know, uh, you know, you mentioned fibromyalgia as common, more common than we what we think it is um and we're sort of coming hopefully coming on the back of what we're now thinking about as post-covid right and so um this concept of post-covid sequel there's this it seems to be uh a greater uh i don't want to use the word prevalence or incidence right now because we can you know we're not sure but there seems to be more A perception of chronic pain in general, and associated with post COVID, uh, or if let's say it's a post COVID sequelae, Um, that seems to me to be a bit of uh, a curveball in the entire uh, situation. Uh, Has have you had to deal with it, uh, uh, or have you been thinking about it? How is it that we can kind of you know tease apart? it, it, it seems to be like a whole bunch of questions at the moment to me.
1: It is. It is. And I think, I mean, that kind of goes for COVID in general. You know, there's still so much that yeah. we're figuring out. There's a few things that I have seen happen in the wake of kind of COVID and and at least in the U.S., what we're kind of calling long COVID. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And that is there's been a huge amount of research dollars poured into studying COVID, long COVID. What makes somebody have kind of chronic sequela versus, versus not. And, and that has sort of benefited fibromyalgia because there's just more attention Mm -hmm. drawn to that. And there certainly Mm -hmm. are a lot of kind of comparisons where somebody with long COVID kind of looks like somebody who's dealing with fibromyalgia, but there's kind of one key difference. And so the thing that I think is important to tease out is that what, and I've had a few patients, uh, and just people I know that are dealing with long COVID and their symptoms primarily are fatigue, um, kind mm-hmm. of postural orthostatic issues, um, you know, kind of strange neurologic phenomenon. That It presents in a lot of different ways for folks. But the one thing that actually is not that common is pain. People actually are not describing much pain. And so what I think long COVID looks a lot more like is chronic fatigue syndrome. And chronic fatigue syndrome is one of those things that some doctors kind of lump in with fibromyalgia and kind of say they're the same thing. But folks like me, who've really done a lot of research, think they're very distinctly different. And there actually are quite a few differences between chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Um, Namely, in chronic fatigue syndrome, there's no elevation of substance P, P for pain. It's one of the um, kind of neurotransmitters that amplify pain signals. So I look at somebody with chronic fatigue syndrome and say that actually looks very similar to long COVID. And in chronic fatigue syndrome, we know that there's some kind of, something's gone haywire in the immune system. We think in response to exposure to some virus, it doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. the same virus, but just some virus. So then if we think like, okay, with long COVID, the immune system and body has gone haywire in response to this virus. And so- To me, I feel like those things are very similar and I am ecstatic. I mean, chronic fatigue syndrome is even more misunderstood and more neglected than fibromyalgia at this point. So ultimately Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the research being done on long COVID is gonna filter down and really help people with chronic fatigue syndrome. My patients with fibromyalgia who've gotten COVID have noticed an amplification of their pain, an amplification amplification of their brain fog not of their pain, of their fatigue, sorry, but not pain. So
0: right, okay,
1: yeah. fibromyalgia plus COVID really seems to equal more fatigue, more brain fog, worse sleep, but pain kind of remains the same. So that's the piece that I think is important to kind of pull apart. I mean, of course, every patient's experience is different, um, but for the most mm-hmm. part, long COVID is not associated with pain.
0: So. Right. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, so that's probably... Uh, you know, for the for our sort of physician audience members, that's probably the the key flag to, to remember. Okay, yeah. great, awesome. Yeah. Um, you're also the uh, founder and medical director of the Frida Center uh, for Fibromyalgia, and I noticed that we do have some lovely artwork behind you. Um, <laughs>
1: yes, my Frida. You know.
0: Tell, tell us more about the center uh, uh, and perhaps uh, even a little bit, uh, uh, what, what was the inspiration behind uh, <laughs> leveraging the artist? And...
1: Behind the name? Yeah. Uh, so I founded the Frida Center uh, in uh, 2010, and my goal was to really provide a place that focused exclusively on the treatment of fibromyalgia. And at the time, there really weren't any places like that. There still aren't really. There's some places that kind of focus on chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, but but having it just dedicated to fibromyalgia alone, I felt was really important, both to kind of bring bring more awareness to the condition. You know, fibromyalgia right in the name there, um, and and also so that I could I could focus just on treating with fibromyalgia patients. And as I treat, you know, I've, over the years treated hundreds of patients, I learned from each one. Right, so that's really help me develop my approach, kind of fine tune my approach. Mm -hmm. And so as I was thinking about, you know, creating this clinic, I really wanted something that was kind of inspirational because I think with fibromyalgia, you can feel, at least I certainly did when I first was diagnosed a great sense of hopelessness because you know, it's Mm -hmm. chronic and we don't have a cure and, and we don't right now. I mean, we can get improvement, I think I'm about 70 to 80% improved from where I was when I first um, developed fibromyalgia in medical school, but I'm not cured. I still have fibromyalgia and it still affects my life. And so the idea behind naming it for Frida Kahlo was she also is somebody who dealt with certainly chronic pain. She was in a horrible uh, bus accident when she was in her teens and
0: Mm -hmm. Fractured
1: her spine and pelvis in multiple places. Had something like 36 spinal surgeries over her life. And, you know, back back then in the 20s and 30s, when she was dealing with this, uh, fibromyalgia didn't exist. That was not a name that existed. But some Mexican rheumatologist um, published an article, actually, that came out when I was in uh, med school. That they looked at her journals and her art, and they thought that she exhibited fibromyalgia symptoms and so i remember reading that in med school and i found it so hopeful because even with mm. chronic pain and they didn't even have like great medicines back then I mean, she just really had like no no options uh she still managed to take the art world by storm like create these amazing i mean she's Absolutely. probably one of the most famous female artists now um one of her paintings recently sold for like 36 million Dollars and she she was such an inspiration to me. I thought, you know, I bet she'd be inspiring to, to other patients as well. And the reason why I have her artwork behind me is because this painting here um, is called The Broken Column. And you can't mm-hmm. really see it from here. You can certainly see that she, you know, she has her spine kind of as a column that's broken yeah. in lots of places. But yeah. it, she also has uh, thorns that she's put all over her body just like fibromyalgia pain. And in fact, many of the right. thorns are in the tender points we use for the diagnosis. And so oh, I, when wow. I saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a visual representation of what fibromyalgia feels like. And so I feel like it's important to kind of put there. Um, I wish she hadn't you know, exposed her breasts so I could like feel more comfortable <laughs> having it out. I've definitely been, I've been censored on YouTube because she's behind me. And I'm like, come on people, it's art. Um, yeah, she's, she's my inspiration and, uh, I still find her very inspiring. And, uh, we recently had an exhibit in Portland at the art museum of her work. So I was able to see her work for the first time. And it was like a religious experience (laughs) for me. It was like, oh my God, she's just
0: amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that she's world famous at, to to give you a small uh, anecdote, um, there's uh, there's a small sort of well, it's actually not that small, but uh, an outdoor bazaar in Delhi, um, and you know you have people from all over India who come in and you know selling uh, bed covers and bed sheets and and carpets and you know those sorts of things. Uh, it's it's called uh, Delhi Heart for you know all the audience members who are interested in visiting or are from Delhi, but um, there was a. There was a a Frida Kahlo a uh, print on one of the bed covers, and I'm like, where where did you get this inspiration from? And uh, the guy was like, no, no, she's a very famous artist, and uh, and i was like, well, how do you how do you know about her? And uh, and he's like, no, you know, we interact uh, with a lot of tourists, and someone just sort of picked it up from a from a a backpack or something like that. And then they just sort of ran with it. So I thought that was magnificent. Yeah.
1: I think, I think that is as well. And at least in the U S there's so much like Frida is having like a moment, like there's just so much, you can get like bumper stickers and pins and jewelry and, you know, t-shirts and Frida has become very popular. Um, and I like to joke that I was the one that brought her, you know, back because back in 2010 she was not as as well known or out there, and so now she's everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, that was totally me. I'm just kidding. Because well, I mean,
0: she's <laughs> she, she she's made it into um, uh, I think it was uh, one of the movies, uh, one of the animation movies that she made it into. It was... Yes.
1: Um. Oh, yes, the one about. Um, oh, that's such a great one. I know what one you're talking about. Coco. Yes. Yes. When, when I saw her in that, I was like, oh. yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So now kids know about her too.
0: Right. So my 10 year old knows about Frida Kahlo just because from that, uh, from the movie. And so, and then we were okay. sort of describing, you know, you know, what's going on and things like that. That's so yeah, no, great. I think uh, you're absolutely right. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, moving along to, um, you know, so the Institute uh, uh my understanding is that uh, it's now mainly focused about creating awareness and less about treating patients. Um, could you perhaps touch upon, uh, you know, some of the latest research that we have going on in the field? Um, and, you know, how is, how is it that you've perhaps incorporated that into your practice, but um, maybe how is it that other uh, physicians can incorporate that into their practice as well?
1: So the newest research research and what's very exciting um, is uh about 2 years ago i think summer of 2021 uh some brilliant researchers in europe um did a study where they they drew the blood of fibromyalgia patients purified it so it was just antibodies igg antibodies mm-hmm. and then infused those antibodies into mice and the mice actually developed symptoms of fibromyalgia they uh became they didn't move around as much they had higher Uh, like it took less stimulus for them to experience pain. So it it seemed like they had the same pain amplification and the same fatigue that people with fibromyalgia experience. Um, Certainly we can't talk to a mice and say, are you having brain fog? But I imagine they might also have been having that. The differences and what's so exciting is we have not thought that the immune system was involved in fibromyalgia pain generation um, because, you know, when we were first looking at it in, in the early 80s, a whole bunch of the people first thought it was an autoimmune disease, which is why it was grouped mm-hmm. into kind of rheumatology. And then rheumatology, all these, yeah. right. all these studies showed that there was no immune system abnormality. Um, and so ultimately, it was kind of deemed, mm, it's not really doesn't fit well under rheumatology. And you know, immune things that modify the immune system aren't really like worth it to try with fibromyalgia. But this study really revolutionized things because it was like, no, the immune system is involved. And in fact, there's Mm -hmm. antibodies involved. And so could that mean that something like plasmapheresis um, or IVIG therapy that kind of modulate the IgG levels, could those become treatments for fibromyalgia? That would be very Mm -hmm. exciting. And I think It's so new that it hasn't really been translated into clinical practice. Like, I don't think that there's many doctors out there probably using those techniques, but I envision Mm -hmm. in the next few years that there's going to be follow-up studies where they start looking at, okay, does plasmaphrasis help? How long do people get benefit? Or are there medications that we can use, kind of immune system modulators? And and that's where I think like all the future research is going to be. In addition to the long COVIDs, you know, research that's has right. really been looking more at the immune system. I think those things paired together. I think the next like decade is going to be really exciting for kind of new techniques to treat fibromyalgia. Um, so, uh, you know, is fibromyalgia an autoimmune disease? I mean, certainly the immune system seems to be involved, and we don't exactly know mm-hmm. how it's being involved. But in the, in the studies. Um, what they found is that these antibodies bound at the dorsal root ganglia, which is, you know, an important part of pain processing that sits right outside yeah. the spinal cord. So I also think, you know, could injections into dorsal root ganglia help fibromyalgia? You know, it's just as as somebody who's now kind of focused more on research, because I, I realized I could actually maybe help more people that way, rather than mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, focusing my energy on, you know, treating 300 or 400 patients at a, at a time which of course has been very rewarding and I love that work. But as I think about, you know, kind of how, what kind of mark do I want to leave? um, Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe with research and discovering new techniques, maybe that's a way that I could leave a bigger mark. Um, So yeah, that's stay tuned on that. I think it's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot coming out in the next few years.
0: Okay. Awesome. So, um, you know, for our audience members, uh, you uh, you heard it uh, here first. So thank you, Dr. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Perhaps uh, if you don't mind uh, touching upon, uh, so you are presenting at the conference, and I believe uh, you're also uh, running a session as well. Uh, Could you uh, give us a sense of, you know, what what we can look forward to both uh, at the uh, at the session, but also in the, uh, in the talk as well.
1: So, uh, no surprise. I will be talking about the immune system's role in fibromyalgia and I'm going to go in depth into the mouse antibody study along with kind of some other, um, other research from different disciplines that kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: reflects, um, and they kind of helps us better understand what that, uh, Mouse antibody really is showing. Study is really showing us. So I'm very excited to present that, and I think it will be probably new information for a lot of attendees. And you know, we've kind of heard the same thing about fibromyalgia for a long time. So it's exciting to kind of be like, oh, there's new, there's new stuff to share. And, and I'm hoping it will inspire some of the audience members to think about, like, oh, well, I, I, maybe I could try some immune system modulation on my patients. So that's that's one talk I'm giving. I'm also doing a symposium on, no surprise, manual therapies for fibromyalgia, focusing on myofascial release, and how to both give yourself um, myofascial self-care because you know every everybody needs better. I think fascial health, particularly a lot of physicians who we spend a lot of our time like typing, typing, and you know leaning forward, and and maybe not taking as good care of ourselves as
0: we should. As as you were describing that, I was thinking to myself, you know what, that sounds very useful for me as well, because I spend most of my time sort of, you know, with the the T-Rex arms and, you know, those sorts of things.
1: Exactly. So, and then um, I'm doing a workshop after the conference that kind of is an overview of my approach to fibromyalgia treatment as I outline it in my book. And so that approach, I have kind of a four-step approach I call it rest, repair, rebalance, and reduce. So for the rest segment, we talk about ways to kind of bring uh, a calm, kind of calm down the hyperactive uh, sympathetic fight or flight response. That's really kind of gone haywire in fibromyalgia mm-hmm. along with improving habits around sleep. And then if needed supplements and even medications to improve sleep, because I have found if I can get a patient sleeping better all of their fibromyalgia symptoms improve Very Pain, interesting. fatigue, fog. So if there's like one area to focus on, I think it's sleep, but then building on that kind of the next repair is about myofascial release, gentle exercise that doesn't hurt you. So how to actually like warm up appropriately for fibromyalgia exercise. Um, Cause our muscles are, are tight and we can't just jump into exercise. It has to be done mm-hmm. in the right way mm-hmm. so that it's helpful, not harmful. And then, uh, Repair also includes kind of improving nutrition and, and finding any ways to supplement maybe nutrients that aren't, you aren't getting in your diet. And then rebalance is about uh, balancing levels of inflammation. And, and there's some hormone dysregulation that can happen with fibromyalgia, which can be really important to treat. And then reduce is kind of the, the options, you know, once you've, once you've kind of worked on those other steps and there, there still are some, let's say, residual brain fog. Then it's like, what techniques, medications, treatments, that's really the more kind of traditional medicine part. You know, how can we use medications to, to treat any residual symptoms? Because medications do certainly play a role. And there's, there's evidence to support a lot of different medications um, that aren't actually the the three common ones that people think about, which is um, duloxetine, gabapentin, and pregabalin. Those are kind of what is in the Traditional providers' toolbox, you know, but but there's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. many many more medications that are used kind of off label to treat various symptoms of fibromyalgia, and that's this approach I developed, you know, through working with hundreds and hundreds of patients trying to figure out like what's the most important thing? Ah, it's definitely sleep, and and kind of trying to figure out a a sequential way to do it because it can be very Mm -hmm. overwhelming for a provider or a patient to say like, okay, great, I've got to change my sleep. I got to do this. I got to do that. And yeah. it's just, it's just too much. I think we have to take it step by step and not everybody needs everything. I'm, I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to supplements, because I personally can't remember to take 20 supplements at different times of the day, this yeah. on stomach that I, I'm like three or four a day max, like that's all I can do. And I feel like most people kind of are the same way. So I'm excited to share my approach because I'm hoping that even if a provider doesn't do the whole thing, even if all they get from that is, right, I have to tell my patient to do self-care stretches or okay, work on your sleep. I think that could make such a difference in the lives of the patients they're treating.
0: Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And I think you've touched upon something that we've, we've felt as well, which is, you know, when we talk about, uh, uh, conditions that have that are multifactorial right so you know lifestyle diseases for example you know it's it's very easy to say oh it's a lifestyle disease but what people often forget is what that means is that you know the 20 30 years of habits that have built up and now you're asking the patient to be like oh by the way you have to change this you have to change you know exercise this way eat this way uh, you know do these so 10 different things and the patient is like wait hang on you're asking me to change my life entirely right. you know <laughs> i've
1: been doing something for 30 so years this way like yeah
0: it's exactly you hard. know i thought i was normal for 30 years and now you're telling me wait i've been doing everything wrong so <laughs> I, I think what you're describing uh, resonates a, a lot which is you know let's let's tackle the most sort of high impact you know if if is about self-care. Let's empower the patient to do self-care. If a large portion of that is about sleep, let's target sleep. You know, I think that's brilliant. So um, I think there's some lessons to be learned over there as well.
1: I certainly found it completely overwhelming when I was first trying to figure out what was going on with fibromyalgia and how to treat myself. Because my traditional doctors didn't really have much to offer me. I was just trying like all the, I was trying acupuncture and I was trying this diet and I was trying that and I was trying this cleanse. And I mean, it, I did all sorts of things, crazy stuff, colonics and just weird stuff. Cause in the, in the name of experimentation, cause I was like, I have no idea, but I also remember feeling incredibly overwhelmed and like, what direction do I take? You know, there's 12 different directions here. Do I eat less mm-hmm. of this? Do I eat more of that? Do I, you know, so I try to keep that in mind as I now make recommendations to patients like, Hey, let's not get overwhelmed. Let's just do one thing at a time. Um, I do think it's really important though. Yes. A lot of things are lifestyle changes, but I feel like in a way there's sort of this bad connotation, at least in the yeah. U S with lifestyle changes. Cause people sort of mean like, feel like that means like, oh, I have to diet and exercise and, and that has this sort of like, uh, Particularly for somebody that's in a lot of pain and feels fatigued,
0: mm-hmm. the last mm-hmm. thing they
1: are going to want to do is exercise. So I don't even like really have an exercise conversation until down the road once I get them sleeping better. And once, you know, their mm-hmm. fascia is in better health and their nutrition is better. Um, cause a lot of doctors, my patients tell me a lot of doctors tell them, well, you just need to lose weight. You're just depressed. And I, and I think that's, mm-hmm really important to kind of avoid, or you just need to exercise. I think we have to kind of avoid that. I don't even use the term exercise, actually. I've taken that out of my vocabulary. And instead I say therapeutic movement. Let's do some therapeutic movement and just take like exercise has this, like, Oh, I tried that and I keep hurting myself. And you're just telling me I'm fat and lazy and out of shape. And, you know, patients instantly are kind of alienated by that. So therapeutic movement. That's where it's at.
0: But that is an excellent uh, reframing, though. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I think people forget that the reason we move, I mean, the human body is built to move, right? And if we don't move it, then, quite frankly, we lose the functionality that yeah. we so often rely on. So yeah. I think that re- uh, reframing is excellent.
1: Yeah. And pain goes up. If you're more sedentary, pain levels are higher. But the instinct yeah. when you are in pain and exhausted is is to not, not move. move right and so that's like reframing yeah. that and like no no no. let's shift it but do it in a way that's gentle enough that you're not going to hurt yourself
0: yeah no that makes complete sense um before we wrap up um uh, we usually ask uh, uh our guests uh you know so uh we, we often see there's there's medical students or people thinking of getting Uh, 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 into, quote unquote, the chronic pain space, or even for those uh, listening in who are interested in pursuing a career focused on uh, fibromyalgia, what what advice would you give, uh, you know, someone who's at that stage where they have to now make that uh, important decision of what it is to to focus on?
1: First, I would say thank you so much for having an interest because it is still a very underserved um, patient population. And what I would say is it's a very rewarding career to go into because patients are so grateful. They've been turned down or, or dismissed or, you know, been treated poorly by so many other providers. And so it, there's this very rewarding um, experience where you can really help somebody. And yes, you're not going to provide a cure and and you have to kind of shift your mindset a little bit we're not looking for a cure. We're looking for improvement. And once you do that, seeing that improvement is so rewarding and so gratifying. So I would say, yes, please specialize in it. We need more people absolutely that specialize in fibromyalgia. And I will say you will be very, very busy because chronic pain and fibromyalgia are so common. And I, I mean, my clinic, I always had like a mile long wait list because there was just so many people. Like I couldn't, keep up you know and it, mm-hmm. i think expect to be very busy but uh rewarded and there's so much new research it's really an area of medicine and science where we don't understand things that well so yeah. it's really yeah. exciting to kind of be on this forefront of like oh my gosh there's oh wow the immune system is involved oh this is involved as we kind of learn more we're like we're really behind in our understanding and as that gets caught mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. i think it could be a really exciting field to be in because it's you know, it's really interesting to see new new developments and and maybe even want to get involved in research yourself there's so so much exciting stuff happening
0: brilliant brilliant um with that sort of inspirational uh note uh dr lipton i'd like to thank you for your time it's been a pleasure and a privilege to have this conversation uh, and uh, i look forward to meeting you in person at the conference thank you for your thank time
1: Thank you so much i appreciate it i look forward to meeting you at the conference and i'm looking forward to learning more every time i go i learn so much at this conference so i'm excited
0: brilliant thank you very much my pleasure bye